0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Annie Burke, and this is New Books and Film. What are you doing right now? I mean, besides listening to this podcast, are you commuting to or from work? Are you doing laundry or making dinner? Are you listening to this to procrastinate your work, or are you listening to this for work? Both. Neither. Why are you listening right now? And when you're done, what are the odds that next you'll pull up some goofy TikToks on your phone? Okay, before I get too meta about this, let me introduce our guest, Ma- Madeline Lane McKinley, a lecturer at uh, UC Santa Cruz and author of the book Comedy Against Work Utopian Longing in Dystopian Times. Dr. Lane McKinley is here to discuss Comedy Against Work, which came out last month, it's November 2022, from uh, N- Common Notions Press. Madeline, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Can you tell us a little about yourself and how you got into comedy and media scholarship?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a a long version of every story. So maybe I'll start (laughs) in the 90s. I was a kind of comedy geek in elementary school who would um, record things on VHS tapes um, and then record over those and record over those. And I got exposed to a lot of comedy really early on um, and you know, was the movie reviewer for my high school newspaper and things like that. And, um, and then I went to grad school, I, I studied literature at uh, University of Chicago, and then I got a PhD at, at UC Santa Cruz. And um, I really, you know, comedy was there, comedy and media scholarship were there the whole time, but I really returned to them after um, getting my PhD. And, spending a lot of time kind of reflecting on you know why did i why did i study literature all that time and what was it what was it getting at what what was the purpose of that for me um and um a lot of that just you know post-grad school was inviting myself to um apply some of that work to um, things that i care about and that Things that I see other people caring about, including including my students and friends and people peripheral to the academy or even kind of against the academy. Um, so I think that's kind of uh, how I, you know, crept around yeah. and then returned to <laughs> this form of scholarship. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I mean, comedy nerd and high school newspaper movie critic. Sound like I feel like I'm. Li- like listening into a mirror, looking into a mirror, <laughs> when you say that, um, and I think yes, and with comedy, it always seems to start very young that interest in it. But the examples you give, as we're going to talk about, are um, all pretty contemporary, or I should say that there's a lot of links to the the present, which I imagine was one of the great joys and, and challenges of writing the book. But yeah. um, so as you sort of moved into away from sort of literature proper with a capital P into the study (laughs) of comedy and, and popular culture. Um, how did this particular project about comedy work, utopias and dystopias, how did this project evolve?
1: Um, yeah, so that, that theoretical foundation, um, that I got from grad school, you know, um, include, included a lot of, you know, careful studying of utopian theory and literature and Marxist feminism and, um, you know, the Frankfurt School and things like that. And Mm -hmm. I think all of that kind of seeps into the project. But there was just a period after after getting my PhD where I was reflecting on um, my experiences as a worker in the university. California <laughs> and my my previous union is currently on strike, so I have to say, you know, solidarity with the strikers, um, UAW um, strikers across the UC system. I was um, in that union for eight years and know deeply those struggles, and um, I was thinking about that a lot, and thinking a lot about, you know, what it was like to be a parent. Um, in grad school, I became a parent my first year in of the PhD program um, and the challenges of that and the isolation of that. And I think that just there was a period of, of reflection that allowed me to kind of reconnect with comedy as not just how I coped and, you know, turned off the clock um, which obviously I don't think I really did that that's part of <laughs> part of what I'm writing about and through and against in this book um, that tension but um, yeah it allowed me to kind of think about what I was doing with comedy that whole time and kind of look at comedy as a a utopian through line um, of of my whole life really um, that um, deserved revisiting, but also seemed to speak to um, a lot of the struggles I was, I was observing as a, as a worker in the university system and um, living in collective houses and having friends who worked in all sorts of really different and difficult job situations. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think just having a desire to synthesize those experiences, I think, um, was a lot of where the book came out of.
0: Um, Well, you write, um, you write this book, I mean, there's, I love, in many ways, this book is like, if you could pick all the things I want to hear about in a book, your book, like, it has so many (laughs) wide-ranging examples, but everything I wanted to know and think and talk about, so that's one reason I was so excited to have you on the show, and I want to get into the meat of your argument, but you're I I also did want to talk about the sort of personal way that it's written. And Mm -hmm. I feel like you've led me right there. So maybe we can just talk about that first. That you write, you incorporate your own voice and experiences as a parent, as a teacher, Mm -hmm. um, as an academic. Talking about sort of like the awkward cocktail party conversation that people have in (laughs) academia. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded I wanted to pull out um, this passage you have about... The okay. stew, and I lost it. I'm sorry. But oh no, here we go, because I'm working in the wrong place. So it's about, um, you talk about, much of this book has been written from my kitchen, mostly at a desk beside a window, but also from the kitchen counter, where I move between paragraphs and chopping vegetables on a butcher block beside the stove where I every so often dip my wooden spoon into a pot and stir. I've come to understand stew much like this book as both parts labors of love and work, housework strike, never one without the other. I thought that was great. And I wanted to or our listeners to hear it, but <laughs> was you. that originally, when you when you conceived of this project, mm-hmm. did you know you were going to be in it in a way that many authors don't sort of feature as characters, as, as full people in their monographs? Mm-hmm. Was that something that you knew you wanted to do when you started, or was that something that you realized at some point, I can't write this book without putting myself in it, or it would help hmm. to put myself in it?
1: I think that... A lot of what I'm doing in the book is messing around with genre, and mm-hmm. um, so I think that that was important to me. It was also I have to give credit to my to my editor, Andy Battle, who read an earlier draft and just thought, you know these these moments where you do appear um, are good. <laughs> Keep doing that because I think I I was having a well I'll say it this way being. Very much conditioned as an academic, and having spent, you know, one one year outside of <laughs> academia in my adult life, um, still, uh, which I spent on a Greyhound bus listening listening to comedy and reading comedy and things like that, you know, as I look back. Um, but I, I was reconciling with, you know, how discouraged I'd always been from using that personal voice in any any academic writing and. And the experience I have as a writing, a writing and composition teacher, of um, working with students who um, who have been told their whole lives never to use the first person in their writing, and you know, suddenly with a change of genre, you know, in an invitation to do that, something really unlocks, and is you know, it's a beautiful thing to to watch. Um, So I spent a lot of time kind of thinking about that methodologically, but I'm also writing a lot about comedy as a form of um, feminist writing. And so I think I wanted to take that seriously at a formal level, you know, and not just thematically, right? It seemed really appropriate that I um, get at that at all levels, (laughs)
0: Well, as a reader, it's very rewarding because you sort of get to feel like you're watching the book get made oh, as you're cool. reading the book. <laughs> um, it's trippy. No, it's but it is. It's in a larger feminist re- tradition of writing, right? Um, that is that is that. I certainly pays off. But I want to make sure you get a chance to talk about the book oh, itself, yeah. and not necessarily just <laughs> that you wrote the book and how you wrote it. But I want to <laughs> talk about comedy and work, obviously.
1: Well, I'm um, glad that Stu came up because. That. Stu, I think we gotta talk <laughs> We got talk about Stu.
0: Slide. <laughs> and thinking about how you're using um, comedy to cope with, like, to cope or to get through the day, mm-hmm. I'll get through the work day, even though it is the work, is, I think, going to resonate with a lot of listeners mm-hmm. who are writers, critics, and academics. Um, I have such a hard time Because like my hobby my, my favorite thing to do When I'm not working Is to watch movies and TV And my job is to write And think about movies and TV <laughs> and So sometimes I can't I think like I have to find something to watch I'll be like Oh let's watch this I'm not going to find anything Good or interesting in this mm-hmm. So I won't have to turn That part of my brain on But it's very hard to like Find something Not only you're like I don't want to like this And I don't want to find it interesting Like if there's anything Even <laughs> per- mildly provocative in it I'm going to get like that's going to get switched on mm-hmm. and then the work day is back on. Um, so it means watching purposely watching really vapid things, but that can't even be like in a cultural studies way interesting because you're like oh no I'm back like
1: watching <laughs> Boy
0: Island but now something is like rattling around and I'm thinking about yeah okay
1: yeah um, I totally relate
0: <laughs> so work is as you know your it work is our social totality that's me quoting you mm-hmm. um, and you know that but in case a listener wants to know the work is our social so t- totality and you look at examples really very wide ranging from the TV sitcom in the form of the f- sitcom a historic comedy club strike, um, the genre of the self-help podcast, and many and you know many other forms, as you say, forms and genres of comedy and um, sort of expositions, narrativizations of work. Mm-hmm. Um, when putting this book together, how did you decide what would and wouldn't count as work when everything is work, but also that's sort of the problem you're trying to address, which is everything is work, but not everything can or should be work?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, well, I want to think about it from in terms of anti-work. Um, what is and isn't anti-work? Um, and I think a lot of my project is, <laughs> I like to joke, I, I huffed a lot of Frederick Jameson in grad school. It's like permanently in my brain. Um, but his thinking around the utopian impulse Um, is clearly really um, foundational for me. And like the joke about Frederick Jameson, right, is that he can find utopian in anything. Um, And I'm kind of following that um, tradition, I think, or I'm looking at anti-work as a utopian impulse that you can find anywhere if you look hard enough, right? Um, And so... I was trying in the book at least to, um, balance out some like rather straightforward examples like the office or yeah, the comedy worker strike of, uh, 1979 or things like this, but to build towards, um, you know, some examples that are not straightforward in a, um, kind of model for the reader, uh, a way of reading a way of thinking about comedy that builds towards a practice of comedy right so um on the one hand yeah the office seems like a really great example because everyone has at least heard of it but at this point everyone has seen an office episode or a meme or something like this and um so it's useful to me to turn to, to objects like that um, and to draw out some of the tensions in them. You know, it, on the one hand, it's a show about the absurd, the American version is especially conflicted, I think, but it's a show about the absurdity of work um, paper company in a paperless economy. I mean, it can, can get more definitional than that. And then it's also about this like romantic vision of the workplace as not not just family, but like better than family. Right. Um, it's where you want to escape your family to, or like where you can really fall in love and things like that. Um, so having a lot of examples like that, that felt. Um, yeah. Fairly relatable, seemed important to me or um, yeah. Um, explicit about its content and it this. This relationship between work and and comedy. But then I was really thinking, you know, the stew example is is a good one uh, about, you know, how does this happen in my kitchen? Right? And how does um, comedy take place, you know, in my relationship with my partner, as we negotiate these moments where like, capitalism is like pitting us against each other in this most intimate way. And how do we use comedy more intentionally as a way of um, relating to each other and, um, you know, extending t- care to one another in, you know, not just to, um, you know, grease the wheels, right? Like not not just to to make this unbearable situation more bearable, but to actually kind of inhabit this critical space together and collectively. So, I was hoping that, you know, by the end of the book, you kind of have this sense of comedy as, you know, much more than, you know, episodes of The, the Office or these, you know, various stand-up routines or things like that. And as a kind of way way of life or um, revolutionary practice in some way. So um, the hope was that the examples kind of um, broke apart and had that possibility. That makes sense.
0: Yes. And you talk about this comedy as a practice. I want to pull out another phrase or I should say like passage that you talk about how comedy is a practice of refusal, a mode of critique and a place to begin imagining and enacting a life against work. So thinking about comedy as an anti-work practice, as an anti-capitalist potentially practice, but that it is also, as you talk about, it's a very fraught relationship because comedy is an industry. It's also used to cope so that people can further continue in their work or um, can sort of um, just live alongside capitalism or live inside it. Um, So I guess... When you think about like these different exhibits that you draw in as anti-work comedies, like where do you feel like was an example of one that truly delivered on this practice of refusal, and where is one that maybe um, is just kind of like a deference, a deferral, a kind of like more of a coping mechanism than an actual treatment of the mm-hmm. of, of the problem. Um... Yeah. So, are they all kind of somewhere on the spectrum (laughs) of like totally fixing it? Obviously, nothing really totally fixes Mm -hmm. um, it. Versus like completely a bait and switch.
1: Yeah. So, I think I think it is something like a spectrum, right? I don't think that there is a perfect, you know, representation that (laughs) unlocks these these contradictions. But there are better and worse. comedies against work, right? So I would say like on that spectrum, something like The Office is actually really um, problematic because because of the ways in which it appears to us as anti-work comedy, right? And in fact is all about kind of upholding this capitalist work ethic and romanticizing it. I mean, I don't think there's anything more dystopian than the fact that elementary school children um, love the office, right? That <laughs> The office was the most uh, popular uh, streaming series of the pandemic, right? Uh, when people are getting out of the, these workplaces, that's exactly when this, I mean, it's not as if it wasn't popular before, but it was more popular in 2020 and 2021 than it, when it was on the air by far. Right. Um, so the idea that there's this period where we're breaking away from work (laughs) and the stronghold of work potentially, right. Where we can start to trouble that relationship. And that's exactly when that particular series is invited into our living rooms. Um, is, you know, it's terrifying. Um, and I would say, um, Yeah, very much on the kind of reactionary end of that spectrum. I look at, um, well, maybe I'll answer that within genre first, which is like, I think that the show Abbott Elementary, which I didn't get a chance to write about because it came out so recently, um, is inhabiting the same genre um, of the mockumentary sitcom. But its orientation towards work is really different. And I think... um, much more complex in that it's following these teachers whose day-to-day kind of conflicts are all about how to um, grapple with this idea of a labor of love, right? Like how much their heart is um, involved (laughs) in their work um, and how much care is demanded of them for these children who have, you know, often have no other options. I think it's a really, um, you know, beautiful re-rendering of that of that particular genre. So that's just my answer within that genre. But then, um, you know, I look at Maria Bamford's stand-up comedy as being um, really, and I, she's kind of the end point of my book um, as well uh, as being a kind of transcendent anti-work comedy. Um, that, um, you know, provides a kind of methodological um, understanding of uh, of what that means, right? That comedy is a way of estranging us from our relationship from work, even, even in brief moments and giving us kind of glimpses into um, what a life against work might be, right? Um, so I think... I try to mix enough positive examples of, of what that looks like, but in each of them it's, you know, it's, there's contradictions, there's, there's problems. And the best anti-work comedy actually is just about showing us what those problems are so that we can kind of lay them bare and, and think about them instead of masquerading work as, as something that it, that it isn't um, which, you know, a lot of these sitcoms end up, end up doing, right, is, is kind of disciplining us in, as workers more than, um, providing us that release valve that we really want from it.
0: Right. Cause anti-work comedy isn't necessarily about like, um, saying that you're not going to work anymore. It's about showing the problems of work. And I think showing the work of work, that mm-hmm. it's hard because even when you're, even anti, like when you're, picturing a life without work or a a life where you're taking a break from work, it doesn't mean that it's always, it's not all like, you know, cucumbers on your eyes, um, <laughs> right. restful. It can be like the life of like working communally towards something mm-hmm. or family and friend relationships. It doesn't mean that you're like completely retreating from your responsibility to other people. It just means that maybe you're not doing it in the, in the structure of of the work of like a capitalist workplace or a place that extracts value maybe without putting anything back which i think Mm -hmm. um you see really laid bare when you look at the the labor of comedy Mm -hmm. and when you talk about the 1979 comedy strike one of the things that i think connects like comedians and academics is this idea of if you love what you do you're not really working so we're not going to pay you (laughs) um absolutely (laughs) once you start hating it we'll pay you more and it's like well there. Like, if I hated it, if I'm, you know, maybe I hate that I'm not being paid, can that get me more payment? Um, mm-hmm. I think that, and so you talk a lot, particularly, and I'd say like the first half of the book is a lot about the labor of making comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talk about this tension between what you call jokesterism mm. and... The feminist or comedy killjoy which you attribute to sarah ahmed mm-hmm. um but can you talk a little bit about that distinction between jokesterism and the killjoy um because i think that that is been i feel like boy that comes up that's been coming up a lot lately <laughs> mm-hmm. for, like feels like lately but i can't i can't determine a start point absolutely um, I don't want to start, I don't want it to be 2016, but it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, this idea of jokesterism and and sort of operating in, uh, I don't want to say bad faith, but I think that these, these positions of like, it's the comedy comedian doing the work of being a jokester or being potentially the critic or comedy comedian being a killjoy, Mm -hmm. but it is also about like
1: the cultural work that these figures do. Yeah. So, um, Let's see. Well, the jokester I I draw from Lauren Berlant, um, who wrote this this great new inquiry um, essay, kind of at the height of Me Too, looking at a lot of it is kind of actually it seems inspired by the Al Franken <laughs> incident, but oh, it yeah. feels um, like a great framework for thinking about um, some of the broader tendencies of that moment, and how they, I mean, fold into the present. The jokester figure um, is kind of based in a Hobbesian theory of comedy as pure domination. Um, The jokester uses comedy to exert his power. Um, And I write about specifically kind of jokester managerialism, like the jokester boss figure, um, who uses and I, I don't want to just talk about comedy, or excuse me, about, I do want to talk about comedy. I don't want to just talk about The Office, but it it's reminiscent of the um, David Brent character, the, the boss in the UK version of The Office, Ricky Gervais, who calls himself a chilled out entertainer. And he, you know, why aren't his workers more um, grateful that they have this chilled out entertainer boss who, you know, sexually harasses them and makes fun of their weight and makes all these like really um, disturbing jokes and creates a toxic environment around him, but all under the guise of just joking. Right. And so I'm kind of following that from this, you know, much more straightforward figure of the jokester boss, um, the jokester authoritarian and thinking about it more broadly um, as a kind of fascist tendency that we're seeing, in comedy right now. Um, and exactly why like the alt-right has claimed comedy as safe ground for itself. Um, and so that's a kind of method of comedy or a practice of comedy that I'm looking at and I counterpose it to the, the killjoy. So the story goes that feminism is antithetical to comedy, that feminism, at least according to Louis C.K., right? (laughs) Feminism and comedy are the ultimate enemies. And that was very much the the story of comedy that I grew up with and that I think is familiar to most people. Um, The idea that once you start critiquing or unpacking comedy, you know, even if we're not talking about feminists doing this, that you're you're somehow betraying the comedy, right? That you're not supposed to analyze it or think about it, um, or you know, dissect the frog, so to speak. Um, so, I'm kind of contesting that and thinking about, you know, killjoys as you know being hilarious first and foremost. Um, all the killjoys that I know are really funny, <laughs> and um, are funny through analysis and critique. And it's um, inspiring to watch, you know, my best friend Jasmine kind of pick apart, you know, literally any cultural object, you know, she can draw out the jokes and the problems and, and really go for it. Um, So I've known that my whole life, even though I've been told this thing about, about feminism being unfunny, right. Um, But I'm thinking about these as kind of competing practices of, of comedy one that, um, is about domination and violence and the the assertion of power and the other, that's kind of a collective refusal and that's more oriented towards healing practice, a healing practice. Um, kind of, I, I always tend to use this metaphor, but like, you know, drawing pus out of the wound, right? Like, I think that's what the killjoy is doing. (laughs) Um, and that there's like a there are actually people who are fascinated by that um, visually and experientially. But that that's, I think, one of the things that you're doing um, when you're acting as killjoy. So um, I think that those are really helpful frameworks for um, thinking about comedic practices and how they relate to power specifically, which is really like at the heart of what I'm talking about. With comedy against work, right? Is like how to create a kind of anti-authoritarian, collective, revolutionary communist <laughs> comedy, mm-hmm. um, and they start start really with that, with that vision of killjoy comedy.
0: I mean, I think one thing that sticks out in that distinction for me too is that um, the idea that being the killjoy sort of like standing back and like critiquing is less of a is less brave than being the comedian standing alone in the spotlight (laughs) Mm -hmm. um doesn't really doesn't really pan out and in particular when you're looking at the jokester because there's this this toxic thread of plausible deniability in the jokester figure that they can always just say they were joking right and so no matter how far they go they can always retreat back into just joking and then as you talk about this kind of like reverse narrative of like i'm being bullied i'm being picked on
1: exactly
0: uh, and i was just joking um whereas the killjoy who is like ostensibly safe from their like little from their little you know critical perch or something Mm -hmm. um, is the one who's actually saying something that they can't take back, that they're not, they're not working from a place of plausible deniability and, um, you know,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: multi-vocal deceptive language that allows them to like, you know, I'm not going to say the bad thing. You think the bad thing. I'm just going to lead you there. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, There's a kind of, there's, there's more, sort of confidence and bravery in that mo- m- moment, moment um, regardless of who I think is being funnier. Like this question of if <laughs> comedy speaks truth, mm-hmm. like who's actually willing to say it and not say it in a way that they can, they can sort of deny it later. Um, and I wonder how much that maps onto your discussion about authenticity mm-hmm. um, and who gets to be authentic in this space of comedy and who's like, who have we decided are like the authentic comedy workers versus, and what sort of like what spaces are left for female authenticity or what, how do, how is female authenticity recognized in a different way? Maria Bamford being obviously sort of an example of, I think, a woman comedian who's taking authenticity away from <laughs> men like Louis C.K. I mean, like you think you're authentic, like you're not, and now watch me
1: absolutely um yeah well i look at authenticity yeah as a kind of weapon of um yeah of this kind it's within this genealogy of of the jokester right of um a particular work ethic ascribed to white men in comedy that they can inhabit comfortably or ascribe to themselves um uh they're often called very brave comedians <laughs> just to, to riff off that bravery.
0: Men are brave when they do stand up and women are brave when they are above a size four and pose in a bathing suit. <laughs> like that's who gets to be brave. Like those are Absolutely. very gendered ideas of courage
1: for under sure. Fire. Yeah. And, um, so I, I look at it that way, or uh, is this, uh, is this work ethic, um, that enables um abuse in workplaces and things like this right so um louis ck is a great example of it um that you know his kind of toxic energy i mean he was before um even before we knew the extent of the kind of behind the scenes harassment that he was um engaging in, you know, propagating in, in the comedy industry, um, on stage, he was, you know, um, simulating masturbation (laughs) onto, onto the audience frequently and, and kind of, um, yeah, exhibiting this behavior and that was authentic, right? Um, that was his, his being vulnerable, um, And so he can use that as a kind of power, whereas we look at someone like um, Cameron Esposito, who um, did a great special called Rape Jokes in 2019. I think it's a great um, imminent critique of the comedy comedy industry, but she's very much putting herself in a position of vulnerability um, because... um, the second that a femme comedian becomes quote-unquote authentic they're unfunny right it's the the trappings of the killjoy um so it's very much a a way of kind of masking these power dynamics uh that are taking place in comedy and it's 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 a it's a way of romanticizing um the the work ethic of of, you know, vastly, la- uh, vastly white men. And one of the things I think a lot about with this, and I write about in the book is, um, for instance, Andy Kaufman, who's, um, his kind of shtick was to be anti-authentic, right? At the same time, but he was still mobilizing all of these tropes of authenticity and, um, doing it to such an extent that it kind of legitimated, um, you know, abusive behavior or, you know, um, drew a question mark around it. So when he was, um, wrestling women, right. Um, he was so quote unquote committed to that, um, that still people are kind of wondering, you know, was that, was he making fun of himself and, um, and not the women he was wrestling was he like was that a kind of weirdly like feminist move on his part or was it always kind of keeping bringing um the women he was wrestling in as the butt of the joke too right was it like actually really deeply anti-feminist i think those questions um come up because authenticity has this um it, it becomes a kind of move that that his comedy was making um, where you're always kind of guessing um, and it also masks um, work and workplaces in under a kind of guise of masculine artistry right So there's a long history and I bring in you know the history of method actors into this their commitment to this like their authentic commitment to these parts is uh celebrated but if we look at any of the workplaces that these actors were (laughs) inhabiting like it's it's despicable i um you know probably the worst example is um you know marlon brando um in last tango in paris like deciding i regret that i've i'm forgetting his co-stars name but you know deciding on her behalf that he should rape her with with a butter stick, right? Um, and his decision was coming from this kind of method place, but she, uh, her consent was um, not required for that decision, right? Because of this um, gendered aspect of who does and doesn't get to be authentic um, in these workplaces. So I'm kind of thinking through this as like, like any of these categories, it's not just about comedy, but it's about how they kind of bleed into other workplaces and, um, you know, help, you know, think about analogies. Um, and I, I do look a lot of, at creative workplaces as being particularly ripe for this, like, toxic energy <laughs> to come into them, but I don't think that, I think the... Analogy to um, the academy is a really important one um, in the book. For instance, I, I don't think it's specific to the culture industry at all.
0: Well, I also before we I'm looking at the clock before we close up. I want to think a little bit more about how wildly contemporary this book is. <laughs> how often you see things? I'm sure that when you were working on this, it felt like. Um, I'm thinking of like the movie They Live, you put on the glasses and like you see, I don't know, that's maybe a weird example mm-hmm. of like just the <laughs> idea that looking around, people can go look up They Live if they feel John Carpenter, um, but like putting on the glasses and you suddenly see the world like completely differently um, or all through sort of your, this particular ideological lens. Uh, when you were working on this book, I imagine that you found examples in support of this, of these sort of this argument about comedy and anti-work everywhere because comedy is so saturated. Like we are so saturated with comedy from everywhere. And of course um, we're all working all the time. Mm -hmm. And if we're not working, we're thinking about why we should be working or (laughs) we're trying to devise a life with, uh, you know, I, you know, inject eye roll here, work-life balance, Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) all of that stuff. So, what was it like working on something so contemporary? I ask this because I think a lot of scholars and listeners have particular have projects with sort of a particular end date, and it allows them to, you know, mm-hmm. all of this, this stuff that your entire book might be like, and in conclusion, still happens. Um, <laughs> but you were probably taking in new input all the time, but eventually you have to finish writing a book. Mm-hmm. So how did you like... How did it feel working in this vein? And is there any you mentioned Abbott Elementary, but I'm curious about like even now, do you see things and you think that could go in the book or that could have been in the book?
1: Yeah, it's yeah. So it's it's a lot like grasping at sand and I am constantly <laughs> thinking about new things I could incorporate into this. But I think that's part of the point, as I wanted to I am anti-completist. I'm not trying to, to show you everything, um, anti-work comedy in this book. I'm trying to, um, elaborate a kind of framework or a, a way of thinking about comedy that readers can then go on to apply to, you know, whatever is the hot topic of that week or something like that. Right. Um, and I, yeah, there was always a temptation to add more. My, I probably drove my editors crazy in the last stages where I was like, well, I want to put this footnote, please. Like, there's this more recent thing that just happened that really, you know, distills this point. But ultimately, it really is about um, just setting up a way of thinking about comedy so that um, so that it can be useful, so that it has has a future. Um, I do write about, I think the earliest stuff that I'm writing about is like mom's Mabley and (laughs) vaudeville and things like that. And then I go up to the, to the present, but I, um, I rewrote the book basically. Um, it was a, it was an earlier book before COVID, but then, um, I kind of decided that, you know, while on the one hand, this is this is something that I think can be applied to different periods and um, is working towards a kind of epistemology um, that I think is useful elsewhere. It's also um, really just trying to capture this moment of 2020 to 2021, 2022, um, when I think you know, a lot of these questions were becoming legible in, in beautiful ways. And um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of speak to that, speak to that moment. And um, yeah, I was grappling with the irony of, um, okay, I have this work project. It's about anti-work, right? Um, What you were saying earlier about trying to find, like, F-Boy Island or something like this, for trying to find things that there's were not... There's
0: so many interesting <laughs> things about F-Boy Island, though. I was like, exactly. oh, foiled again.
1: <laughs> Damn. <laughs>
0: either, either that show is smarter <laughs> than, it th- than anyone thinks, or I'm smarter than I ever thought, because yeah. I'll be like, there's my take, but I haven't I know. yet. It's I want what... to keep it for myself. It's a little island of stupid
1: pleasures. <laughs> it's the life of a cultural critic, though, right? Yeah. Like, you just can't turn it off, and... No. What I had been thinking was, you know, this this way of escaping from work ended up becoming my the site of work for me, and I had terrible insomnia during um, the first year of the pandemic, and would wake up at one or two in the morning and come down to my kitchen and just work on this project, and it was in a lot of ways how I how I dealt with. What was going on, how I kind of organized my thoughts around what was going on in this chaotic moment. Um, and it was also just a time when I needed to heal from a lot of things. And um, I, I found the process of writing about it really pretty healing um, in surprising ways. So, um, yeah, I don't, I think that that, as far as I understand from those who I've, you know, shared the book with, it It does seem that like these last couple of years, um, a lot of things opened up in our imaginations. And um, I hope that the book really speaks to that, to to readers who've given a chance.
0: I think it will. I think it's a really enlightening and potentially a very healing read for a lot of people who are trying to, you know, devise a meaningful life like that has work in it, but maybe can still be anti-work at the same time. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And so I just wanna thank you so much for being here and I wanna just give you an opportunity now to uh, draw any attention to any other book-related events you may be doing, any future projects or pieces you would like listeners to be aware of. Um, Oh, thank
1: you. Yeah. um... I am uh, the editor or co-editor, excuse me, <laughs> of uh, Blind Field, uh, a journal of cultural inquiry, which is a very kind of lo-fi DIY um, counter institution. <laughs> and we put up um, essays about contemporary culture, maybe once a month, a couple times a month at this point. But I, um, I always appreciate supporters of that project and um, for keeping it alive. And it's been a nice kind of autonomous space for um, myself and my co-editor, Joanna Isaacson, who um, also wrote a book called Stepford Wives, it just came out through Common Ocean Press. Um, so I want to plug that for too. Um, and then yeah, I've just been finishing up um, an epistolary novella actually with my friend um, Max Fox called Fag Hag. And that's what I've been working on and wanting to um, find a home for next. But um, that's really all I have in terms of promotion. I'm going to be bringing the book on tour at some point, but it's hard to say right now with um disease and you know, I'm just trying to, to figure out what that looks like. So I know. The um, pandemic's yeah.
0: over unless you go anywhere and then you're like, uh, right. oh, no, the panic is still exists. So um yeah. that's plenty. That's that's more than enough you have on your on your on your work plate. So thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you. And um and for putting in an extra mention for your journal and uh Again, thank you so much Madeline for joining us today. Thanks, Annie. You've been you've been listening to Madeline Lane McKinley on her book Comedy Against Work. I'm Annie Burke and this is New Books in Film.